Welcome to the Global Development Institute podcast. Based at the University of Manchester, we're Europe's largest research and teaching institute addressing poverty and inequality. Each episode will bring you the latest thinking, insights and debate in development studies. Thank you, Rory. Thank you, Sam, David, uh, Freya. And it's great to be here uh, with you, Yang Jong, uh, and all of you. So um, I want to begin by saying that, uh, you know, I'm not, so as Rory said, most of my research is on questions of social welfare with an emphasis on public health. Um, and on the other hand, on questions of ethnicity and nationalism and us and them boundaries. And so what I thought I would do today is really just structure my remarks um, for about 10 minutes around uh, three or four broad issues. And the first has to do um, with the kind of immediate response uh, of India in terms of what they have done and how that has evolved, uh, because we've been, as we all know, only too well in this pandemic uh, for a while. Um, And so that's kind of a first overall kind of national level comments. Um, The second has to do, the second set of comments have to do with the fact that like the US, um, so, you know, as Rory mentioned, we are here today talking about the world's two most populous countries. But, um, you know, India is the world's largest democracy and both Yang Jong and I come to you from the world's uh, second largest democracy, where democracy has been um, in peril for a while. And so what I want to kind of also do is bring in some comparisons uh, from the U.S., and, uh, and talk about the peculiarity of India um, as a federal government. And so that's the second set of uh, brief remarks I want to make. And finally, I want to talk about, you know, what was happening in India when the pandemic broke out. Um, I have a fellowship this year at the Center for Advanced Study of Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. And so they have just announced that they're going to have an in-person spring semester. And so in the course of the last few weeks, in addition to everything else, I've been trying to find myself a house uh, in Silicon Valley, in the heart of Silicon Valley. Um, You know, it's interesting, you always get your iPhone with the Cupertino weather. And so now I'm actually looking for these places. And so I've learned this, this phrase from these millennials or post-millennials that I've been trying to kind of negotiate with on housing leases called the before times. I hadn't heard about this. So what I want to do finally is talk about in India what was happening in the before times, uh, what was happening in kind of the broad political situation uh, when COVID-19 broke out and how those kind of pre-existing political conditions have influenced uh, the nature of the response, particularly as regards the nature of ethnic relations and nationalism and us and them Boundaries. Um, so um, I'll begin by saying that, you know, in a way, uh, Rory began, you know, it's Thanksgiving in the US, and I want to begin on a kind of slightly personal note just to kind of point out in a way how real the pandemic is in India and everywhere in the world. I mean, it almost feels as if we shouldn't have to say this, but, you know, as I kind of still go for walks and see the number of people in my neighborhood not wearing masks. Um, it is something that I feel. So my parents are being discharged today after a long stay in hospital uh, from COVID-19. And so, of course, that's just one data point. And they have were privileged enough and lucky and fortunate enough to get the best medical care. Rory and I were talking about the availability of remdesivir, dexamethasone. Um, and so, you know, that that in a way is a very privileged data point um, into the crisis. But as we know, it doesn't bear repeating that 
India has had one of the worst cases or worst instances in terms of the number of infections, uh, not so much in, in terms of the number of deaths uh, from COVID-19. So what was the kind of broad contours of the Indian government's response? And so at this national level, the first part of what I want to talk about, uh, the Indian government actually put in place a very strict lockdown, which some of you might know about. And this was generally lauded uh, by the World Health Organization and a number of kind of important players um, in the global health situation. They, every, everyone was under very strict lockdown. This was announced with very little notice. And from a public health perspective, it seemed exactly the right kind of thing to do. You know, you stop the chain of transmission, you try to flatten the curve. However, the one aspect of this lockdown, which has, of course, now been spoken a lot about, but, um, you know, we talk about state capacity. And so I've been involved for some years in um, SAM and uh, the Rory's kind of broader project about state society relations. And so the one interesting thing about the Indian government's response was as a state, uh, one wonders about the Indian state's level of ability and capacity. And I think this will be an interesting point of comparison with Yangzhong in China. But I think independent of state capacity is the question of state will. Like, what does the state want to do irrespective of what it can eventually do? And so uh, Lant Pritchett, who was also at the last ESET conference uh, that Sam had organized, has this concept of a flailing state to describe India, in which he says, you know, the head of the Indian state, this kind a bureaucratic, technocratic um, uh, brain is actually amazing. What happens, so it's great policy making. What happens is that the state flails because the head is not attached to the body. The kind of sinews of the state, especially as it gets into the local areas. And so the problem becomes one of the implementation of these quite excellent policies crafted by the head. And so, you know, the problem comes when the rubber hits the road. The reason why I mentioned this is because in, in the context of the COVID-19 response, in India, I want to venture and, and provocatively say that this was not India's classic flailing state problem. This was actually a situation, and this links, links back to my third point about what's happening in India before the pandemic, or you know, what were the political situations in which uh, the virus uh, broke out, in that this was actually a question of the state um, not thinking through perhaps willingly about what policies needed to be put in place. And I'm talking here in particular about the urban migrant crisis, uh, which many of you might have heard about. So India goes into a strict lockdown. There are hundreds of thousands of migrant workers who, like in China, are employed in the cities um, that have families um, and live back home in the villages and have very temporary um, living situations and employment situations. So in the strict lockdown, these hundreds of thousands of urban migrant workers are basically left with no source of livelihood, but also no way to make it back to their native hometowns. And so this is where I say that it's not, it wasn't so much a flailing state problem. It was the fact that the state it appears, really did not think through or care enough about these most vulnerable, most marginalized populations in order to actually put in place a plan. And so there were these completely heart-wrenching situation of photographs documented by one of India's journalists, Barkadat. She spent, you know, hundreds of days on the road documenting the plight of these migrant workers who in many instances walked hundreds of thousands of miles dying from dehydration, dying from sheer exhaustion, from lack of food, 
and the state for many weeks did not come in. So whatever relief came in was from non-governmental organizations. And, and so this is the, you know, so, so on the one hand, from a public health perspective, and, and it's important to keep in mind that the Modi government uh, has really tried very hard to project this image of India into the world um, as this kind of emerging power, often with the kind of you know, contrast of China uh, lurking there. So, you know, from, from that point of view, it all was great. You know, the India was doing exactly what the WHO had recommended. It was being patted on the back. But in addition to the public health crisis, because of the sheer lack of will and foresight um, and desire to be there for the most marginalized and vulnerable people, there was this humanitarian tragedy that was added on to this public health tragedy very early on in the pandemic. And I think this, you know, I began with, with the case of my parents, um, but I think here, like in China, India is a very unequal society. So what did it mean for India to kind of follow the letter of public health recommendations without taking into consideration its own reality? So one was, of course, the urban migrant crisis. The second was, you know, what do living situations look like? An average of seven to eight people in a one-room settlement, uh, a tenement in India's what are called slums, informal uh, settlements. So, what, so this idea that social distancing is a luxury. What does it mean to shut down the economy when there is, you know, almost no savings for these people to rely on? And what is what? So, you know, so there was this kind of general idea in the media that the lockdown was meant for this idea of people like us. People like me, people like my parents, people who were educated, who wanted the chain of, you know, who wanted to be safe from the pandemic. But there were these kind of twin plagues that were emerging along with the pandemic that were disproportionately affecting those who were anyway more likely to be fiscally and from a health perspective, more vulnerable. I mean, we know from the work of people like Jishnu Das and a number of other people that spending on health is one of the leading causes of impoverishment, which often leads into cycles of debt for generations for Indian families. Um, so on the one hand, from a global perspective, India does it all right. Um, but from the point of view of the most marginalized and vulnerable, uh, the Indian government displays a shocking lack um, of not just capacity, but in this case, will or desire to think through what this kind of, you know, perfect public health lockdown will mean for them. Um, so that's the kind of broad contours of it. I don't want, you know, so since then, the Indian government's response has evolved. You know, there has been a kind of opening up. But as we speak, um, much like in many other parts of the world here in the state of Rhode Island, which has, um, you know, so I'm kind of now segueing into my second part of the comments about federalism. Um, the state of Rhode Island is going into something called the pause, in which bars and restaurants are beginning to shut again as of today in Thanksgiving. So um, India is similarly kind of rolling back this opening right now. But what I want to kind of now pivot to uh, from this kind of general national level comments is to talk a little bit about the fact that India is a federal government. Um, and so Rory mentioned um, in my first book, which is a comparison of Indian states. Uh, and India is a linguistic Federalism. So different states in India are, are usually correspond to different linguistic groups. And so uh, one of the dimensions of the COVID-19 pandemic, which doesn't come as a surprise to someone like me who studies variations in Indian states, is that the picture looks very, very different where in India you are. Of course, the picture looks very different where in the U.S. you are, you know, state of Rhode Island with Gina Raimondo, who made it to, you know, Time and Newsweek and the New York Times as a very proactive governor. I'm much safer here than I am in other parts of the U.S. Um, but just to give you a sense of, you know, what the 
pre-existing differences in public health looked like within the overall federation of, um, of India is that India is a very symmetric federal country. And so Indian states are bound by the same legal, financial and electoral systems. But just to give you, um, you know, one kind of data point into the differences, very stark differences in public health. If you are a woman born in the countryside in the north central Indian state of Uttar Pradesh, which has a larger population than Russia, you are expected on average to live almost 15 years less than if you're born in the South Indian state of Kerala, which is demographically larger than Canada. So, you know, again, the point about India and China both being very, very populous countries. And so these are the kinds of dramatic differences in the quality of life and public health that were already pre-existing when uh, the novel coronavirus hits. So, um, in my book, I've made the argument that actually the, these differences can be traced back to differences in the strength of subnational solidarity. So states that have a much stronger sense of regional subnationalism are the states that have shown a much greater willingness to be able to prioritize the collective good, including public health and education. And society, the question of popular compliance, I think, becomes very key. We are going to see that, especially as you know, now the vaccine, fingers crossed, begins to be rolled out. Um, so in these cases of a stronger sense of what I call we-ness or mutual obligation, societies are also more likely to come on board uh, and comply uh, and cooperate with state health and general welfare directives. And so just in the case of COVID-19, um, very early on, Kerala, along with uh, countries like New Zealand, uh, began, or Vietnam, began to be hailed as this kind of exemplar of a very um, proactive COVID-19 response. And just to again put it in perspective, Kerala has one of the highest rates of population density. It's also one of the most ethnically fractionalized states in India in terms of very large Muslim and Christian populations. And also it's very deeply connected uh, to a Malayali diaspora. So they have, you know, some of the largest rates of people coming in um, into Kerala. And they still did an exceptional job, uh, mostly again following WHO guidelines of testing, um, uh, quarantining, isolating, but also kind of providing uh, public welfare uh, rations, food rations, uh, a large army of volunteer contact tracers. And so, you know, just to kind of put it in perspective, there are these national level responses in countries, but then within India, Kerala, for instance, has been a state that following its generally positive trajectory of social welfare did really well. And to me, it was building on this kind of pre-existing health infrastructure. But the fact that it could tap in to this kind of pre-existing solidarity to get people to comply with these public health directives, which involve a lot of sacrifice, you know, staying at home, wearing a mask, but then also being able to mobilize very quickly this large volunteer force in order to kind of provide mental health support in Kerala, the kind of, in a way, the dark side of Kerala um, is also that it has one of the world's highest suicide rates. Um, and so, you know, there was this large volunteer force that was there to provide mental health uh, support, to provide uh, public rations and food, and also to help with the actual immediate fallouts of the pandemic in terms of helping with quarantining and contact tracing. And so that's the one thing I want to point out is that some, to some extent, uh, it becomes meaningless to talk about a national level response without paying attention to these state level distinctions that are even clearer in a federal country like um, like India. And I want to end um, on this third point, which is about you know what was happening in India 
when COVID-19 um, broke out, the before times, as I've learned now to call it. So in the before times, um, India has a Hindu nationalist government in its second very important term in office that has long espoused an idea of India that violates a very secular, inclusive, syncretic idea that's enshrined in the Indian constitution and follows on from the Indian nationalist, the anti-colonial movement against British rule led by Nehru Gandhi and the Congress party. So the BJP uh, following on uh, from Godse, so Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated by a member of the civil society organization. So just to kind of give you a little bit of a historical idea of the fact that this was a contesting vision of the Indian nation that goes back to the time of independence itself, in which Gandhi and Nehru were seen as traitors to the Hindu um, idea of the nation. So this party now is in, it has an absolute majority. It doesn't need coalition partners. So this is a very new kind of uh, power that this um, BJP government wields. And in its specially second term, was elected back in 2019, it has shown a kind of uh, really deliberate uh, agenda of implementing this idea of India as a Hindu nation. And here, of course, the main other, the them for the Hindu us are Muslims. And so when COVID-19 broke out, uh, there were unprecedented social protests against two very important institutional interventions that the BJP was trying to make in order to marginalize Muslims as residents and citizens of India. One was the National Registry of Citizens in which Muslims who had lived in India for generations would have to kind of prove um, their being Indian and their residency. And there were these large like prison-like structures that were being created in order to house uh, mostly Muslims who were unable to show this kind of residency. And the second, most immediately, was the Citizenship Amendment Act that made it, uh, that basically discriminated against Muslims uh, seeking asylum or becoming refugees in India. And so on the one hand, uh, there were these laws. On the other hand, this was the high tide of social mobilization. Hundreds of thousands of people were on the streets of India. And I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post about this. They were you know, claiming Indian national symbols. So they were waving the Indian tricolor. They were standing with pictures of Gandhi and Nehru and Ambedkar, who drafted the Indian constitution. They were singing the Indian national anthem, saying this is not the vision of India that we, we stand for. So this, um, the kind of BJP's uh, institutional attempt to impose its idea of an exclusive idea of India, along with these protests, literally people on the streets in Shaheen Bagh, um, in, in India, in Delhi, were, was the context in which, of course, the novel coronavirus breaks out. So for one, and this links back to the first point, it's, it's a tremendous gift for the BJP government, because now they can shut down these protests that have been roiling the streets of India for many weeks, um, all through December. So come March, they now have like carte blanche to remove all the protesters and impose this lockdown. But in a sense, um, more importantly, they kind of revert to this idea of, you know, the scapegoating of Muslims for the pandemic. And so I've been writing this piece in which, and Rory mentioned, there's this public health um, book that I've been working on for a while. But the thing about diseases is that they always have the potential to raise these us and them boundaries. And so COVID-19 is not the first pandemic in which we've seen the kind of stigmatization, the naming, blaming, shaming of minorities. We saw that, you know, going back to the bubonic plague and the targeting of, of the Jewish community, the targeting of immigrants for smallpox, syphilis, 
tuberculosis, you know, AIDS being called, you know, associated with the four H's. So there is the racialization of disease that unfortunately long predates COVID-19. But I think the interesting thing is that the it's almost like the analogy is to the human body. We know that people with pre-existing conditions are more likely to uh, have worse outcomes with COVID-19. So it's almost like exclusionary nationalism was this pre-existing condition um, because of which the social fallouts of COVID-19 were more intense than they might otherwise have been. And in particular, the fact that there was already this kind of us and them, the othering, the scapegoating of Muslims made it very convenient for exclusionary nationalist governments uh, like the BJP government to now also begin to term Muslims as kind of, quote, super spreaders. And just to end with the comparative context, that's not new. We've seen the kind of, you know, obvious demonization of Asian Americans, but in, across Europe, we've seen the disproportionate policing and victimization of the Roma um, in the US and in other parts of the world. Again, people who were already anti-immigrant immigrant have now, you know, Donald Trump tweeted on March 23rd in, in caps, you know, this is why we need borders. And so in a sense, uh, the disease, which does not respect borders, has made borders all the more salient. Um, but I'll stop. Thank you. Thank you very much, Perna. Over to you, Yanjong. Okay, well, I'm going to present on how um, China managed the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, so well, this is the uh, shows the impact on human health of COVID today. Uh, now we have um, globally 60 million cases, well, including uh, 12.6 million in the US, which causes 260,000 deaths, and India 9.2 million with uh, 135,000 deaths. And if you look at China, which is uh, number 61 in terms of the uh, impact of uh, human health, uh, uh, the rank, um, it has so far a um, little bit over 92,000 cases. Uh, that was 1% uh, of India's and 4,742 deaths. That was 3.5% of India's. Again, provided that, that uh, the numbers, um, uh, the data, uh, there's no significant underreporting here. Um, and this shows the number of novel, uh, the COVID-19 cumulative confirmed and death cases in China from January 20th uh, to November 24th, right? Um, so it is very clear that most of death uh, in China occurred before uh, uh, late April. In fact, by uh, April 22, uh, 22nd, there was close, uh, um, there was close 800, eight, I'm sorry, eight, uh, 84,000 cases, uh, over 4,600 deaths. Uh, but uh, after April 22nd, you know, only uh, like one tenth of the cases before uh, April uh, 22nd, and uh, with only 106 deaths. And so you have seen actually significant drop of the cases and deaths you know, uh, after uh, uh, late April. Um, and in a way, if you look at also the regional distribution of the cases in China, it, this pandemic, this epidemic acts, uh, looks more like a, a local or regionalized epidemic, right? Uh, 
Uh, we know that the, the, the disease started in uh, Wuhan, which is the capital, uh, the provincial capital, Hubei province. Uh, so Hubei uh, becomes, uh, Wuhan became the epicenter of the outbreak in the Hubei was the hardest hit by the pandemic. Uh, even today, you just uh, uh, look at all these cases uh, in the province, you know, actually about three, it claims about three quarters of the total cases in China and 95% of all deaths in the country. Um, and this shows, uh, this is the, the actual from the New England Journal of Medicine. It is like a time uh, uh, line on how the government uh, respond to the outbreak in the, uh, in the initial stage uh, of the uh, epidemic in beginning uh, in November, actually in December uh, uh, through uh, uh, January 20th. That was when China announced, you know, formally acknowledged uh, this the human to human transmission of the virus. So, well, when we know that when any country, like not just China, is facing a novel virus, right, it takes time to recognize, to define right, the nature of the outbreak, and then uh, to launch response to the crisis in a timely and effective manner. Right? That is, it is a challenge, but. Uh, the question is, does that justify the initial mishandling of the outbreak? We have seen right, this cover-up and inaction uh, essentially delayed response by at least two weeks. Right? Uh, if you look at uh, this certain smoking gun evidence pointing to uh, the initial cover-up, in a way, for example, the infection of healthcare workers in Wuhan had already been an open secret uh, in the frontline hospitals in the city by January 10th, right? Local government continued to deny that there was a human-to-human -human transmission until January 20th, right? Uh, it also disciplined whistleblowers, right? Uh, doctors like uh, Li, Dr. Li Wenliang, right? Who tried to alert people about the outbreak. Then if you look at the inaction, right? Uh, basically, local government did not ask people to take uh, preparation measures, precautionary measures, right? They went forward with an annual potluck banquet on January 18th in that uh, uh, neighborhood called by Buting, right, with more than 40,000 you know, households uh, participating. And until January 20th, right, in Wuhan, a few people wore masks. I all, uh, were even uh, encouraged to wear masks. Uh, there was a huge problem of, in terms of lack of testing capacities and uh, hospital beds. Indeed, until like uh, early February, they were they had uh, like fewer than uh, uh, two thousand uh, cases of uh, um, uh, test uh, in terms of testing capacity. Uh, the uh, the health system, not not surprisingly, you know, when the government announced right, the, the outbreak, uh, the entire health 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 systems are overwhelmed you know, by the people who are seeking right, uh, uh, hospitalization, who are trying to get tested. In this. 
So that delayed information sharing and inaction might have contributed to the fast spread of the virus domestically and internationally. There was a study uh, suggesting that the, had the government acted upon uh, the, uh, the outbreak early, uh, by two weeks, we could uh, uh, actually reduce the domestic cases by 86%. Uh, and internationally, right, the, we, we know that the, even though well, there was a lockdown uh, in Wuhan and beyond, you know, the uh, people were sp still able to travel overseas. In fact, according to the New York Times report in early April, right, 400,000, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 430,000 uh, people actually have traveled from China to the United States since uh, uh, the end of December. Uh, um, so uh, uh, the argument can be made you know, many of those cases you know, that were found in the United States you know, actually could be connected to the outbreak in China. But th that being said, we know that the similar problem of dumpling, you know, the uh, threat of the outbreak you know, also occurred by the United States, right? The President Trump himself admitted Right. He was uh, uh, not uh, telling the truth in the uh, in the beginning about uh, in the beginning of the outbreak in the country, right? uh, and also um, the uh, the China's uh, the COVID response is sort of different from its SARS response 17 years before because this time it appears that local government officials should be largely responsible to the initial mishandling of the outbreak in China. You know, that might, as uh, uh, Prona uh, suggested, that they had something to do with the local state capacity there. You know, that uh, if, uh, this is sort of like a counterfactual hypothesis, but if the same outbreak you know, occurred in Shanghai, the story might be different. So um, after January 22nd, right, the, uh, after, well, this is the day that when President Xi Jinping ordered the lockdown of Wuhan, you know, the draconian containment measures being kicked off, right? Uh, uh, there was the lockdown on Wuhan, and quickly that, uh, this measure was extended to uh, other parts of the province, you know, Hubei, and then the other parts of China. Uh, the government also scaled up uh, the testing and treatment capacities, right? There's two uh, hospitals that could accommodate you know, uh, more than 2,000 uh, um, uh, patients uh, uh, in severe conditions you know, were built within just a days. Where they, the government also converted again within days, you know, 16 uh, those like convention centers into those makeshift hospitals, you know, that uh, uh, accepted uh, uh, the patients with mild symptoms. You know. So you have seen this very strong the government mobilization of capacity, you know, that was certainly aided, you know, by you know, high technological means, right, the, the big data, you know, cell phones, you know, so the government was able to monitor, right, the people's movements, you know, around the clock, you know, that was uh, in a way also facilitated by the so-called, uh, this uh, community policing, right, the, the uh, you basically have, you know, the residents, you know, uh, 
just uh, playing a, a role, you know, monitoring other uh, their neighbors or other residents' movements. And these measures appear to have worked, right? You see, this is the uh, the January, uh, late January, we're seeing the lockdown measures being imposed in the uh, the cases and deaths continue to uh, rise until uh, mid-February. But after mid-February, we have seen right, the, 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 uh, the cases and deaths began to uh, uh, drop right until like the end of uh, the early March, essentially. You know, most of the uh, uh, Chinese cities, you know, they are being, uh, um, the lockdown measures were lifted. And uh, the finally in early April, right, the, uh, this uh, lifted of uh, the uh, lockdown measures in Wuhan. And, uh, so after May, you know, we have essentially only saw uh, sporadic outbreaks in the country, right? Uh, in uh, Beijing, you know, Wuhan, uh, the uh, uh, Qingdao, you know, the Yunnan. And Xinjiang, you know, this is all sporadic outbreaks, you know, and uh, many of those cases were asymptomatic ones, you know, there were uh, uh, a few cases actually really uh, uh, actually developed into severe symptoms, you know, that, that led to death, you know. Uh, but uh, um, uh, since May, the government also uh, uh, imposed a new model to uh, uh, handle these outbreaks. This is the uh, policy they call the zero tolerance policy for new infections. And essentially, even after only one case is identified, immediately the government is going to launch mass testing, contact tracing, quarantine, isolation, and also, if needed, then the sealing uh, uh, seal of the cities or high risk neighborhoods. Uh, the government also uh, raised to develop its vaccines, and uh, uh, now they have five vaccines under uh, phase three clinical trial, and they already, even without the uh, completion of the uh, phase three clinical trial, they have already started to administer experimental vaccine on a very large population in the country. Uh, according to Sinopharm, you know, their vaccines already being uh, administered on more than uh, 1 million people in the country. In the meantime, uh, China also uh, raised the bar to travel to China you know, to prevent uh, the imported cases. Uh, uh, recently, they have even asked anybody who are boarding on the plane you know, to, chi uh, uh, to China will have to show the uh, results of the two kind of tests, right? the nuclear acid test results and the antibody test results within 48 hours of boarding the airplane. You know, some people joke, this is essentially saying, well, don't come to China. We don't welcome you. Uh, so- Yanzong, sorry, sorry to interrupt you just one sec. If just one, two more minutes, Max, if, that, if, if that's okay, so we can yeah. open up for the yeah, discussion. Thank you. It's sorry, sorry about quickly that. Quickly done. Uh, so this shows how, you know, the Xinjiang is tackling the new COVID outbreak right this is the uh you know the um the first case was identified in october 24th right? immediately the government uh launched the mass testing of uh, all the 4.7 million people uh in uh, Kashgar uh prefectural and all the close contacts were tracked and quarantined for medical observation 
and uh, testing. Uh, so by November 8th, right, those, this is the, uh, again, but this the, uh, it's reset to uh, zero case in the pr uh, prefecture. Uh, Qingdao, you know, did essentially the same thing. Uh, so what this shows indeed a strong state capacity in terms of mass testing, uh, in terms of coordinating inter-regional prevention and control, uh, and society uh, overall was cooperative, right? The, uh, uh, but uh, in a way, they uh, deciding to launch those uh, these drastic uh, containment measures by the local officials, you know, not public health experts, actually play a primary role uh, in the decision making. Uh, there is no cost benefit analysis, no risk assessment, right? The, uh, you can just look at the, this mass testing measure in Wuhan. They are uh, basically you know, test 10 million people in 10 days, but identified only 300 asymptomatic areas. Right? And in Qingdao, after the finding of a outbreak in a hospital, or they tested 9 million people in the city, but no cases were identified. So this is also raised the issue of sustainability. Why, to what extent this, you know, at all costs, by all means, you know, this the approach is going to be sustained, especially if you have multiple outbreaks in the country uh, uh, on a, a more uh, frequent basis. You know, so, uh, and in the meantime, you know, this could be uh, open to the discussion is that, you know, it raises the question of the role of the, uh, uh, the political systems, you know, state capacity in dealing with uh, disease outbreaks. You know, so with that, I'll stop there. Thank you.